Good morning, Hillcrest. It is so good to see you guys here. Really, this is an exciting Sunday. I'm glad that restrictions are easing a bit. We're back up to more of a fuller capacity, and it's so good to see you in here. And those of you that are joining us online, again, thanks so much for joining us. Very excited to get to spend uh, this morning with you as we dive into God's Word. Uh, of course, we're still continuing on in our B, uh, our Believe series, and we're in the section of B where we're talking about the virtues of the Christian uh, life. And last week, I got to say a huge thank you. Doug, I know you're here in the building. I just want to say thank you so much for your message last week. Um, the quote that's been resounding through my mind since Doug's message has been that the biggest obstacle to kindness is selfishness. And that's gotten quoted a few times in our house Whenever there was like some not-so-kind moments, kind of the eyebrows would go up and we'd be like, well, you know, the biggest obstacle to kindness is selfishness, right? And it's been ringing through my head. So, Doug, I want to I thank you for that. That was, that was awesome. Um, did anybody have a not-so-great May long weekend with the weather? Hey, don't you kind of wish you could have swapped weather you know, systems and patterns for this weekend. Um, although I, I'm a farm kid, so even though May long weekend wasn't all that pleasant by way of the weather, it's hard to complain because I realize the farmers are grinning ear to ear after getting a couple inches of rain, right? So it's hard to, it's hard to complain. But May long weekend always gets me thinking about summer plans and vacation plans. So my question for those of you that are joining us online and those of you in-house can be thinking about this is where is it that you would like to go and see this summer? Like, what is it in terms of travel and holidays, locations? Where is it that you would like to go? And so if you're online, you can throw that up in the chat. And what you do, I want to tell you about a story of um, a holiday I got to take um, when I was just a young fellow. So this takes place back in, I had to ask my brother, it's about 1990 um, or 1991, in and around there. And... um, we ventured to Disneyland at one point on our holidays. We've gone out to beautiful British Columbia. Uh, and I can't help but, uh, especially in a season of restricted travel, I can't help but long for that for my own family, of wanting to take my kids to the places that I got to witness uh, as a young person. And so this one particular holiday, um, mom decided to pack us all up. And we didn't have, uh, I don't know what happened, we were, my mom was always crashing vehicles back then, so we currently didn't have a second vehicle or whatever, and dad was staying back because it was sort of uh, farm stuff to tend to, and so mom packed us into a, a, like a 1970-something uh, Mercury Cougar, okay? Like this car has a lot in common with the Titanic in terms of shape and dimensions and being boat-like, okay? Uh, and it was red, and she took us down to Yellowstone National Park, and on our way down there, uh, we were thrilled. I remember hanging out in the back seat, and for whatever we, I remember like laying on the floorboards and sitting up and using the seat as a coloring thing. Like this was way before seatbelts were ever like something that you were, I, like it was just a luxury or a, you know, an extra on a vehicle or whatever. You know, nobody ever expected you to wear them. But I remember it vividly as sort of a, a nine, ten year old. And of course, on our drive down to Yellowstone National Park, um, you know, there were bears and there were wildlife, but they weren't the destination. Um, There was awesome food. We'd stop and eat at restaurants or like at confectionaries and we'd buy a ton of junk food. Uh, That wasn't um, the the goal. Um, The scenery was great, but that also wasn't the goal. The goal was Old Faithful. Anybody's been there? Down to Yellowstone where they've got... 
500 geysers that shoot water up into the air consistently. And so this is a hydrothermal phenomenon known as a geyser. And it's where underwater, where underground water meets kind of hot rocks. It was discovered in the 19 or 1870s. Um, and it shoots, like, these geysers shoot water uh, 32 to 56 meters in the air. And it's pushing out over like 3,700 to 8,400 gallons of water every kind of eruption. And it lasts anywhere from a minute and a half to five minutes. With Old Faithful, I remember going there, and it was uh, sort of on this, they can actually predict how often it erupts. And it erupts everywhere from like from 60 minutes to about 90 minutes. Um, and I remember getting there and being like, wow, this is cool. Like it's like... I don't know, Mother Nature's water gun. I don't know. Like, it's just throwing tons of gas. And I, and I remember reading on the things about how the guys that discovered it, that they'd use it to do laundry. When the geyser would be down, they'd throw their dirty laundry and everything into these geysers. And then when they erupted, they'd shoot clean laundry in the air and you'd just pick it up. I was like, that is slick. I want to get one of those. I want to get one of those. Anyways. But we're talking about Old Faithful. The reason I tell you this story is because this morning our topic is this topic of faithfulness. And so that made me think of Old Faithful, that consistently, you know, every 60 to 90 minutes, Old Faithful is erupting and throwing water into the air. And so that got me thinking about faithfulness. Now, I realize as we're opening up, and some of you, this might be actually the first time that you're back in church in a long time. And I just want to say, like, you know, we're talking about faithfulness, and this message isn't, this was on the books long before we knew what was happening. So this isn't a message directed to you, okay? But it's not not for you either, right? But we're going to talk about faithfulness. And, and I, I want to kind of deconstruct the idea for, for just a moment with you. So what is faithfulness? Like if you break it down, what actually are the components to get faithfulness? Well, you'd say, well, there's faith in there. So there's this notion of, of, of belief or uh, the Bible also uses sort of trust in place of belief. So there's this notion of being, having a, a belief or a trust in something. And then the, the fullness part is sort of this idea of like um, being consistent with that, being faithful, to use a word to describe the word I'm describing. Not very good. Um, a book you don't even need to read because the title says it all. Eugene Peterson's uh, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Great description of faithfulness, this idea of a, of a, of a belief in but being committed to it. Faith in all of its fullness. Uh, Here's a a challenge to us, though. We can have faith and yet not be considered faithful people, right? You can have a belief in something and yet not carry that faithfully through to the logical conclusion, right? Um, But a faithful person always has faith in something. They are being true to some belief or some idea. So really the question becomes, faithfulness to what? Because we can be faithful to the wrong thing, right? We can, we can operate under faithfulness and consistency, but to the, very, to the wrong things. In fact, I've got a, a little bit of a list. Anybody out there who is faithful to late night snacking? Yep, guilty as charged. Uh, faithfulness to ignoring the engine light on your vehicle. I do it all the time. Or how about that low fuel indicator 
Okay, those, those single vehicle families out there will get this game that my wife and I play where the light comes on and I'm like, ah, it's just a short trip. I don't need to worry about it type thing. And we're always ignoring the low fuel light to see which one of us is going to break down and actually put fuel in the van, right? Until I explain this to my wife and be like, and she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. She's like, if the van needs fuel, I just put fuel in it. And I went, oh, yeah, okay. Overthinking it, making too much of it. Faithfulness to binge-watching Netflix? Like, man, if I lack faithfulness in other areas of my life, TV is not one of those areas, right? Faithfulness to never being more than an arm's reach away from my phone at any given moment? Yeah, that sounds like me. Or faithfulness to forgetting to set up the computer for those Wednesday mornings for those ladies that meet for the Bible study. That's been on my docket, and I have forgotten every time. This is just my list, but what would your list be? Faithfulness to the wrong things. If you've got a, if you've got a minute, throw it in the chat. It would, be, it would be great to hear from you on that. So we know that when we're talking about faithfulness, there's this expectation that we're actually operating out of faithfulness to the right things. And for that, we need to rely on wisdom and judgment to discern this. And here's an interesting connection. In the same way that faithfulness is the playing out of an action or, or a loyalty and consistent faith, wisdom is more than just knowledge, right? Wisdom is actually this notion of applied knowledge or discernment. Because you can have a lot of knowledge and not be a wise person, right? In the same way that you can have faith and not be a faithful person, you can have knowledge and not be a wise person, but you can't have wisdom without knowledge. And so here's a quote to kind of get at the gist of what I mean. So knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. Right? The difference between knowledge and wisdom. Wisdom is a skill of rightly applying knowledge to any given situation, just as faithfulness is the ongoing commitment to the outworking of one's faith. So in our text for today, we're going to be spending time in the book of Proverbs because it's a book all about wisdom. When was the last time you heard a message that was all in the book of Proverbs? Probably not very often. So that's where we're going to hang out, hang out today. Um, but we're going to need to explore sort of having an, a framework and an understanding of what the book of Proverbs is all about in order for some of this to kind of make sense and to kind of guide us as we use it. So if we'll just take a minute, would you, would you pray with me? And we're just going to ask God's Spirit to come and teach us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. And we thank you that you are the mark of faithfulness. And God, I thank you that you call us also to reflect that, to be faithful people. And so, Lord, as we turn to your word, we simply ask that your spirit would be here, that you would guide us into all truth, just as you've promised that you would do. Lord, we ask that we wouldn't come and just hear your word, but, Lord, that we would let it settle into the very innermost part of ourselves and change us and challenge us for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Also online, and for you, those of you in-house, if you want these links that I'm about to mention, you can grab them. Uh, they'll be up in the chat in today's message. Um, but there's uh, our friends at the, the Bible Project are great at making videos that kind of give an, 
an explanation. And I've got a couple of links that are going to show up in the chat that um, they're only a few minutes long, but they kind of give you an overview of what the book of Proverbs is all, all about. And you'll hear, you'll hear some of the echoes of that in sort of what I'm about to say to you, but they say it's so good in the videos, and so I really, I, re- I recommend you go there. But understanding that Proverbs is a book of wisdom, we have to understand what it's not. Um, it's not the law. So when God shows up on to Moses and gives him the Ten Commandments and it is the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots, wisdom literature doesn't read that way. It has lots of advice and offers lots of admonishments, but it's not coming at us as something that is from the voice of God to us in terms of what we need to do. Also, wisdom literature is different in that it's not prophecy. So you don't get this sense of sort of divine speech to Israel through a prophet. That doesn't show up in wisdom literature or here. Sort of this, thus saith the Lord. So we need to make sure that we don't read Proverbs in that way. We want to be true to what it is. And rather, wisdom literature represents Israel's wisdom tradition in the accumulation of insight of God's people throughout the generations about how to live in a way that honors God and others. And so this book is a collection of wisdom that has sort of stood the test of time and has been compiled that is sort of like as Israel aims to seek out what does it mean to live to be faithful towards God and faithful to others, it's sort of this wisdom that kind of comes out in it. And now, of course, if you jump into Proverbs, we often remember them as sort of these little, these sayings, right? These sayings of wisdom. I'll just kind of randomly jump in. And they usually start after chapter 10. And it's like, um, where is he? Uh, Oh, though love and faithfulness, through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Through the fear of the Lord, evil is avoided. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. The wicked accept bribes in secret to pervert the court of justice. So these little kind of like short wisdom sayings that sometimes often don't necessarily have a whole lot of connection to sort of God, right? They're just sort of wisdom sayings. But the first part of Proverbs is all about setting someone up to be able to receive words of wisdom. And it's in this first part of Proverbs that we find it has a great deal of connecting the the information that's about to follow with God, with your understanding of who God is. And so, without further ado, let's, let's jump in and we'll, we'll start to, to unpack this. So, here we go. Um, we're in Proverbs 3 and we're looking at verses 1 to 2. So it says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. So, there's a lot of sections in the first part of Proverbs that sort of this this father giving wisdom or giving instruction to a son. And like all teachers, the instruction sort of comes before the actual teaching. Um, You know those teachers that just love to teach, that they got to give you the information you need to know before they give you the information that you need to know. Proverbs reads a lot like that. But in this text, it's not just elevating parental guidance here, but it's important to consider as this father is teaching his son What is the source of his wisdom? And the book makes it very clear that it is God who gives wisdom. 
And so in a lot of ways, the instruction of a father to a son in this moment contains with it, sort of is synonymous with the instructions and the commands and the teachings that God has given to the nation of Israel. In many ways, they're, they're one and the same. He also encourages, don't forget my teaching. Not forgetting means to remember, but in the Bible, remembering is not just always a a cognitive activity. Rather, remembering is actually something that you're showing by how your life is unfolding. Just as uh, Jesus says in um, John 14, 23, he says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Proverbs encourages us, keep my commands in your heart. The heart is always speaking about the core personality or the inner self. Meaning that these commands are not supposed to just be superficially treated, but they're actually supposed to be protected in the very core of who we are. Verse 2 that I'd read there, um, there's a reward or a motivation for this obedience. Um, These commands will not only extend your life, but they'll bring peace and prosperity as well. After all, what good is a long life if it's filled with suffering and strife, right? Any skepticism towards regarding the easing um, uh, is that if you look at the, just the Ten Commandments and go, think of a society that totally tries to adhere to just the Ten Commandments and then picture a society that doesn't adhere to them at all. And let me know which one you might live longer in. Keep in mind, one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not murder. So I'm going to argue that in a society that wants to honor God's commands and the command of thou shalt not murder, you have a likelihood of living longer than in a society that doesn't honor it at all. So this idea of peace and prosperity follows obedient attention to God's law. But peace is not just the absence of strife and conflict, but rather it's this idea of a rich and meaningful existence. A sense of a fullness of life, and hence sort of this this adding of the word prosperity. So if I had to summarize these first two sentences, I'd say following God's instructions equals a long life of peace. Our next few verses where we jump in here is this, uh, verse 3 and verse 4. And it says, and these are, these are our key verses for today's topic. And this is what it says. It says, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. The phrase love and faithfulness is used uh, elsewhere in Scripture. And most significantly, it's God's phrase to describe himself. In Exodus 34, 5, and 6, it says this. uh, God is meeting with Moses, and this is what he says. "The, The Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. These words describe God's attitude towards people that he's in covenant relationship with. That's us. 
This should be very, very encouraging news to anyone who sort of has this view of God as an ogre or wanting to punish or as soon as you make the slightest mistake or you're lacking in faithfulness that he's ready to drop the hammer. God himself describes himself as compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in, and our phrase, love and faithfulness. And so we're instructed in Proverbs to bind those around your neck. You could almost think of a, you know, like an ornate gold chain or a, or a way of sort of showing what you value or your wealth or your richness that rather than it be gold or diamonds or jewelry ordaining our necks, that it would be this notion of love and faithfulness, that we'd never let them out of our sight. Again, this idea of tablet of heart is an internalization of not just God's commands, but this time, God's very motivations. That it's not just ascribing an obedience to what he said, but God actually wants to invite us in to being motivated by the very things that motivates and moves his heart would move your heart. That you too would be able to live a life that is gracious and compassionate and marked by love and faithfulness because you're motivated by the same thing that is motivating God. Verse 4, and we begin to realize a little bit of a pattern with these verses, aren't we? There's counsel and warning followed by sort of a, a disclosing of the positive consequences of obedience or perhaps more of a, a motivation of why you should obey. In this case, obedience to love and faithfulness as heartfelt motivations are always with us, produces favor with both God and people. And who wouldn't want that, right? Isn't that kind of the best of both worlds? That if you could have favor with God and people, isn't that a good thing? Like sometimes we weigh them that, you know, if we want our, you know, students, if we, you know, if we, we feel a lot of peer pressure in school to be like our friends and sometimes it's hard to take a stand as a Christian because we don't want them to look down on us or to make fun of us or we, we feel awkward. And so we, sometimes we feel like we have to like turn away from the Lord or in order to try and seek the favor of people. And yet this proverb is saying that if you're a person whose life is marked by love and faithfulness, you will grow in favor with both God because you're reflecting his values and his motivation, but that you're also going to grow in favor with people as well. And that really is the key idea from uh, this book, this chapter in Believe, is this idea that I've established a good name with God and others based on my loyalty to those relationships. Interestingly enough, the New Testament says something similar about Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. It says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with both God and man. Why would this be important? Well, a person who is caring and loyal is someone that both God and man favor. God, because you're living out of his likeness, being motivated and moved by his love, and others, because someone like that is respected and sought out. In summary, internalization of God's love equals the best of both worlds. And moving on, we jump into um, verses 5 and 6 here. And they read this way. They say, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Early in Proverbs, 
The Lord is linked as the source of wisdom. But our pursuit of wisdom ought to remain a pursuit of him and not just more wisdom and knowledge. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. I want to ask you a question. When you think of that phrase, trust in the Lord with all your heart, what kind of a posture comes to mind? What is your trusting posture? If I'm honest, I like to trust God on the go. I like to be in movement as I'm trusting God. That as I'm busy accomplishing my tasks and going about my day, that I'm like, Lord, I trust that you're here. I trust that you're blessing. Uh, you know, I love you. I'm glad you're here. But it's, it's, a, it's a trust that's on the move. And when we look at this phrase about trusting the Lord with all your heart, this word trust has sort of a, a posture associated with it. And it's not a posture that's on the move or at the ready, rather, and this might be a little awkward, but it's not even a posture on our knees in trust. It's not even a posture in the fetal position of trust, but the posture of trust. It's dusty. This is the posture of trust. And it's this image of sort of a servant before his master, totally powerless before him. Or a soldier on the battlefield before a conquering general who hasn't got a hope. This is the posture of trust. Face down, helpless, totally dependent. How many of you would like me to preach the rest of the message from this posture? What's the posture of your trust? Bible encourages us that it can't be a posture that's on the move, ready to go, but a posture of total dependence, trusting the Lord with all your heart. Tells us not to lean on our own wisdom, but to acknowledge God in everything. This idea of making your path straight is knowing God on your path. Have you ever noticed it's when you forget God that your path gets a little shoddy? And the notion of this isn't, isn't, is that acknowledging God is on your path. And I don't think it's a, it's a magical formula where we just acknowledge that God is with us and literally situations and everything just absolutely always work out perfectly all the time. Wisdom literature isn't saying that, right? We know the book of Job, enough about it to know that that's, that's not what it's talking about. But it doesn't matter what situation or crisis you're facing. If you've acknowledged the Lord and you know that he's there with you, your path is straight. He he is the destination. So it doesn't matter what you're facing. As long as you know that he's there with you, it's straight. This idea of straight path has this idea of sort of carrying it on to its its goal, to to the conclusion Progressing towards a goal. And so, in summary, I'd say that holding fast to the Lord equals focusing on Him as the end goal. Trusting in Him with all of our heart. Now, we'll move a little quicker through these last verses because time is speeding away on us. But in 7 and 8, and the following verses, I don't really like where the psalmist goes because these are actually incredibly challenging. Here we go, we'll jump in. 
It deals with pride and it deals with wealth. Verse 7, it says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. One of the tensions with pursuing wisdom is that there's no room for, for pride. As Proverbs says, the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is this idea of a moral mindset, a, a healthy respect for God's definition of both good and evil. True wisdom, true wisdom is learning those boundary lines and not crossing them. And of course, in this scripture, the fear of the Lord naturally leads to an aversion of evil, which leads to healthiness and a sense of being refreshed. And I would say, as a summary, these verses are understanding the fear of the Lord equals life itself. There's no room for pride. Verses 9 and 10 goes on to say, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops, Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. This is putting your stuff in the right place. Living it out. Ever notice how Jesus had a lot of harsh words with those that were rich? Even to the point of saying, it's it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were like, whoa, what what do you mean that's impossible? And he says, ah, but what's impossible for man is impossible for man is possible for God, right? Jesus knew that it would be our wealth that has the greatest opportunity to keep us from understanding what truly matters. And here in this proverb, it's encouraging us to honor the Lord with our wealth, with our first fruits of all that we have. Then it says, your experience will be that your barns will be filled with overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. You can give and not have a lot, and yet those who honor the Lord with their wealth know that the Lord is all that they need. That even if they didn't have their wealth and still had the Lord, they would be just fine. In fact, their experience would be one of incredible riches with the Lord. Because a pile of money doesn't make you rich. How does that country song go? Build a living, or build a life, not a living? So I'd summarize these verses by saying, having a a new attitude towards your wealth equals experiencing abundance. And then as we come to the last verses here, and these these are great ones to close on, it simply says this. It says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father the son he delights in. You see, I love these verses because it's great that it's already built in with this understanding that, you know what, we're not going to nail this right the first time. We're not going to ace this. Our faithfulness, my faithfulness, is often fickle and falls short. God desires us to gain wisdom and experience its benefits. He doesn't want us to ignore wisdom And as such, experience the hardships that come from it. It's the reason he disciplines us. It's the reason he challenges us. Is because he loves us. Did you know that you 
living a life of faithfulness to God is the absolute best life you could ever hope to experience? Do we believe that? That being faithful to God is the best life that he could have marked out for us. It's easy to forget that. So there's a nature where we need to expect discipline and rebuke and that it's okay to fail. Not that we fail on purpose, but that it's okay to fall short because how much glorious is his love for us? In short, uh, I kind of laughed at this when I did this. My summary of this, these verses are suck it up equals seeing the Father's love. That rather than wallowing in misery because of discipline and hardship, to see what is motivating behind that. That it's a, a Father's heart who wants us to succeed at life. We can't make our faithfulness all about our performance. It's not about our actions. Have you ever noticed that the, the Christian life tells a different story? I mean, Christians are great people. You, you guys are all phenomenal people. But your life ultimately isn't supposed to be about your faithfulness, about your performance, about how you've been winning at this game. Our lives are meant to tell a different story. A story about God's faithfulness to us. You see, it's the reason this proverb addresses pride and wealth is because he knows how easily those are hurdles for us to overcome to actually encountering the love of God and to seeing his faithfulness to us as being paramount. Therefore, our faithfulness is always meant to be a reflection of his. We are able to be faithful because he was faithful first. Now, in my story, I told you about uh, showing up uh, down in Wyoming. Uh, my dad still has the pewter belt buckle that I bought for him that said Wyoming, and I think it had a big eagle on it, a big pewter belt buckle. It's still in his drawer at home. But when I showed up there and I seen Old Faithful, I was amazed for a moment. And then, like a 10-year-old, ran off to be amazed by something else. And it wasn't until I started actually prepping this message that I started remembering that experience of that trip and seeing Old Faithful. And I went back and actually, I found out, did you know that you can go online and they've got like webcams on Old Faithful so you can actually see these geysers taking place in kind of real time via the internet. I thought that was so cool. And I looked at this thing exploding and realized 30 years have passed since I was there before it. And you know what? I got to be honest, I haven't thought a whole lot about Old Faithful in those 30 years. But my lack of paying attention to it or thinking about it didn't impede its faithfulness at all. It's still going. And I was kind of caught off guard by that. And I felt like in there, there's a, there's a bit of a picture about God's faithfulness to me. That even when I lose sight of things and I forget and I turn my back or I get distracted, it doesn't stop his faithfulness. 
He's always faithful. Realizing that caused me to kind of come back with a, with a sense of awe and wonder at this old faithful geyser and how it points to sort of God's faithfulness, that it's not dependent on my actions or interaction, but it's, fa- it's built entirely on who God is. And so it's with that that as we turn our attention off of our own performance and trying to get it right, and we set our eyes on the glory of God, his story and his faithfulness, our souls should be stirred to worship. That great is your faithfulness to me. Wow. That inspires me. And so... I feel like it's fitting to sort of conclude our, the message today with a very familiar prayer. And the, and the, and the words will pop up uh, for you. But I'd like to invite you to pray uh, this prayer with me as we close. And I, I love this prayer of commitment that Hillcrest has because I really do feel like it, it represents a prayer that this could be the prayer if you're not a Christian, if you're not a part of God's family. This prayer helps give you the words of making that commitment of literally stepping from a world of darkness and a family of darkness into a world and family of light filled with God's love. These words can give you expression for that. But even old seasons Christians can pray this prayer and say these words and mean it with heartfelt worship because they still ring true. And it was even in getting ready for this message that I realized the, the power of this, of this prayer is interesting because it literally has us acknowledging God, who God is and what he has done before we ever existed or could do anything. And then the second part has us making a commitment and receiving what he's done. And then the third part is this beautiful request for God to help us to live a life that honors him with his help, that we can only do with his help. So as we close, would you pray this prayer with me? Dear Father, thank you that you love me and sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Help me to live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So as you go today, I pray that the Lord would bless you and that you would know that you're not in this alone, that whether you failed and messed up and missed it, it's not ultimately about your faithfulness, but about his. And I pray that that turns your hearts towards worship and wonder this week. God bless. If you'd like